or so. Amen. Let's just get a bit of a running start. Genesis 25, let's start with verse 19, although our subject matter will begin with verse 24. We read, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as a wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Verse 24, so when her days, Rebekah's days, were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau, not super original. Esau, if you can take a guess, means Harry. So they literally named the hairy kid Harry. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Harry's heel. So his name was called Jacob, also not super original. Jacob means heel catcher. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, and so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah <clears throat> loved Jacob. Two boys, born from the same womb, proved to be vastly different individuals. The oldest of the two, Esau, we're told, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Harry was the quintessential outdoorsman. He lived off the land. He was self-reliant, self-sufficient. He was a man's man. I imagine he sported a big, gnarly-looking beard. I imagine he wore Carhartt hunted with a bow, probably dried his own jerky. I imagine Esau was a jack-of-all-trades. When he wasn't hunting or fishing, he was tinkering on a Chevy or brewing his own beer. He was wild, a free spirit. Esau, good old Harry, dirty Harry, was fun to be around. But he was also impulsive and even, to a degree, reckless. It's not a surprise with this characteristics in mind, these characteristics, that Isaac, his father, took a liking to Esau. On the flip side of it all, you have Jacob the younger. We're, we're told, <coughs> excuse me, he was a mild man who, in stark contrast to his brother, preferred not being outdoors, but dwelling in tents. Now understand, while Jacob may not have been as adventuresome or as rugged as Harry, in no way does our text imply, as so many do, that Jacob was somehow a weenie, that he was a pansy. As a matter of fact, this word that we have, mild, if you read from the old King James, you'll find that this word is plain, that he was a plain man, a mild man. 
It's only translated this way, that Hebrew word, in this one instance. Nine times, nine times in the Old Testament, you'll find the word, this word translated mild or plain, you'll find it translated instead as perfect. Two times as undefiled, and then one other as upright. The idea by saying that Jacob was a mild man was that he was a good kid. In a sense, he was the model child. While Esau was running around the woods killing things and getting into trouble, you know that kid, it was Jacob who was at home doing his schoolwork. Well, getting rambunctious Esau to clean his room or for that matter, to take a bath. It was like pulling teeth. Organization and sanitation was never a struggle for Jacob. With this in mind, it's really not a surprise that Rebecca, his mother, took a liking to Jacob. If we can all just be honest for a minute, I'm going to say something that's kind of controversial, but, but roll with me for, for a bit. There is no doubt within a multi-child home, Moms and dads inevitably have children that they end up naturally possessing a unique connection with. I know you don't want to admit it, but moms and dads have favorites. It's true. Just, just be real. Everyone has a favorite of your crew. There's that one kid whose personality or liked interests, meshes organically with yours, which makes the relationship kind of effortless. It's easy. In contrast, you have that other child whose personality and interests are so different from yours that the relationship can be challenging. And it's okay to admit that. Now, let me explain why this is a natural occurrence. You see, the child you tend to mesh with the easiest often possesses a personality opposite yours and is more like the person you married. While the child you butt heads with ends up having a personality less like that of your spouse and, if you're honest, more like you. Kids do get their genetic makeups from the two of you. I think that this, this happens in kind of a, a, an organic sense within adopted families, within foster families. I don't even think it just has to be genetics. It happens. With the exception of sometimes non-genetic motivators like a sickness or an emergency or crisis, more often than not, moms and dads tend to connect with the opposite children. Rarely in a family is one kid the favorite of both. Wives draw close to children, most like the man that they married. And husbands gravitate to children, most similar to their wives. Think about it. I think the text actually tells us this. Whose personality was Esau more like? Isaac or Rebecca? The answer is undoubtedly Rebecca. Don't forget, Rebecca was a woman tenacious enough to approach a complete stranger strong enough to carry water for 10 camels on her own, confident enough to rock a nose ring, adventuresome enough to leave behind absolutely everything she knew, to travel 500 miles with a stranger to meet a man and marry him she didn't know. Like, Rebecca was 
a free spirit. Esau, very similar, which is why Isaac took a liking to Esau. Now, on the flip side to it, whose personality was Jacob more like, Isaac or Rebekah? The answer is clearly Isaac. Isaac, remember, was raised an only child. Isaac was a mama's boy, so much a mama's boy that he's still living in his mother Sarah's tent. When he finally gets married to Rebecca, mind you, at the age of 40, he is the original 40-year-old virgin. Like Isaac, Jacob, Jacob would prove to be a thinker. Jacob would be introspective, contemplative. Jacob, like his dad, would be deeply spiritual. We're told Isaac loved Esau. Why? Because Esau was like his wife, Rebekah. And Rebekah loved Jacob. Why? Because Jacob was just like his father, Isaac. And yet, while there's nothing wrong with this natural tendency, in our text, we do see a serious problem that had developed within this home. The way these phrases, Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob, the way these phrases are presented in the Hebrew text, not only imply that Isaac and Rebekah each had a son that they were uniquely drawn to, but the text indicates that they had a son that they loved more than the other. You see, Isaac preferred Esau over Jacob and vice versa. Understand, there is nothing wrong with a parent liking one kid more than the other. That said, you'll cause a whole lot of strife within your home and damage to your children as a parent if you are actively loving one more than the other. You see, if this natural connection leads to favoritism, to a special treatment, it will, I promise you, yield animosity and manifest negatively in the lives of your children. For example, in the Adams household, it was never a secret that Natalie was always daddy's little princess, my sister. There was no debate who was the favorite for my dad. On the flip side to it, there was no doubt who my mom favored. It was Mac, the baby of the family. To this day, Nick and I, we're still in therapy trying to get over it. <laughs> Here's my point. Though favoritism tends to be conditional, love by design and its very definition is an unconditional action. Yes, I'll admit it. It will take more work, take more gumption and and. and and energy to actively demonstrate your love towards that kid who's just like you and whose personality is therefore grating. And yet, it's because they're just like you that actively loving them will become the mechanism by which God will grow you and deepen your capacity for genuine love. The truth, here's the truth. God gave you a mini you for the specific purpose of forcing you to deal with your issues. 
God literally put another human being into your life with your same tics and personality flaws. Why? In order to work those tics and flaws out of your life. That kid, here's the deal. We all laugh because we know it's true. We're just being honest about it. That kid grinds on you because there are areas in your life God is wanting to smooth out. That's a reality. Which means avoiding time with that kid, giving preferential treatment to the other one that you happen to get along easier with, and the process loving one over the other, those actions will not only sow a toxic seed in your family that will grow a root of bitterness and yield nothing but rotten fruit in your home, but making such a mistake will at the same time rob you of the work that God is wanting to do in your life. I'm just like my dad. And I can't tell you how often I've pointed out to him that the friction in our relationship is simply God's way of making him a better man. We can edit that out, right, later. Okay. Before we move on, there's another aspect of Esau and Jacob that we might as well get out of the way, we might as well discuss now. In Romans chapter 9, all of this is brought up again by the Apostle Paul. You don't have to turn that, I'll read it for you. He writes, When Rebekah had conceived by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then, Paul asks? Is there unrighteousness with God? He answers this question, certainly not. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion and then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now here's the interesting question that often arises that gives cause for controversy surrounding this passage. If, track with me here, if before Esau or Jacob were ever born, while they're still in the womb, God predetermined that Jacob the younger would be favored over Esau the older, then can't the argument be made that God was picking and choosing favorites independent of anything Esau or Jacob had or hadn't done? That Jacob was loved because he was elected and Esau hated because he wasn't. In some extreme circles, the precedent of this text, if you carry this idea all the way out, is that they'll make the argument Jesus didn't die on the cross for all men. That Jesus instead died on the cross instead for only those elected for salvation by God. They claim a full atonement, but only for a limited number of people God willed beforehand. Additionally, proponents of this viewpoint also say that because God's grace 
is demonstrated independent of a person's actions. And since some like Jacob are chosen and others like Esau are rejected, it's then only logical that God's grace might not be for all men, but only for an elected few. Now, the problem with building such an argument from this passage in Genesis, as well as Paul's reference to it in Romans, is that it misunderstands the nature of what God was actually saying to Rebekah while both Esau and Jacob were struggling in her room. Look back at God's original statement. He says, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Please note that statement should not be seen as God's determinate will overriding the future free will decisions of both Esau and Jacob. It's bad hermeneutics. I know that's a big word. It's how we study the Bible. It's a bad way of reading the text to conclude that God was establishing these two boys' destinies without either of them ever possessing an opportunity or the ability to have a say. Instead, this is what's, this is what's clarifying. This statement given by God to Rebekah was prophetic. It's, it's prophecy. God is giving Rebekah a prophecy, not a prediction. It's not rolling the dice. He knows. You see, this prophecy is based entirely in the foreknowledge of God. Because God is absolutely sovereign. Because God exists outside of time and space and by his infinite nature knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. God knows everything. Nothing catches God off guard. God here, because that's who he is, is simply revealing to Rebecca through the mechanism of prophetic knowledge what God already knew would happen in each of these two boys' lives. Even before they were born, God could already see the story arc of both Esau and the story arc of Jacob. He could see the decisions that each would make and how those decisions would manifest in their lives accordingly. As a result of Esau's free will decisions, God knew that he would despise his birthright and sell it to Jacob for a bowl of soup. We'll get to that. Beyond this, God knew Jacob, that this birthright would be something he'd take very seriously, something he understood, something he grasped, something he desired. Also keep in mind, the election of Jacob by God over Esau, it pertained to something specific. It pertained to which of these two sons, which of their lineages, the messianic line would descend. Don't forget, God had given promises to Adam and Eve, then to, to Abel, then to Seth, and it, it goes down. Lineages by which this Savior would descend, that God would send this Savior to save man from sin. God had actually given this promise to Abraham. Abraham stepped out in the flesh, slept with Hagar. They had Ishmael, but God was like, that's not the kid. Instead, it was Isaac that God had chosen. And from Isaac, what is God doing here? He's saying, though Esau will be born first, this lineage is going to come. I've chosen Jacob instead for the messianic lineage to go. Just because Jacob was chosen doesn't mean, and it's a leap, 
that Esau is now, before he's even born, damned. Consider, Ishmael was very clearly not the promised son. Instead, it was Isaac the younger, right? And yet still, Ishmael was able to do what? To make a decision to place his faith in God and be saved. He was still able. Additionally, the way this statement that God loved Jacob but hated Esau is translated is misleading. According to John Calvin, he says the real thought is much more like accepted and rejected than our understanding of the terms loved and hated. It's also interesting and clarifying that in Hebrews chapter 12, God spoke to Rebekah knowing ahead of time that Esau would be, and this is what the author of Hebrews tells us, that Esau would be a fornicator, that Esau would be a profane person who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Let me ask, did God create Esau to be a fornicator? Did God create him to be a profane person? Did God pre-program Esau, independent of Esau, to be the kind of man who would sell his birthright because of his carnal nature being more important than a spiritual heritage? No. You can't say that from the text. Esau instead chose to be a profane person. He chose to be a fornicator. He chose to despise his birthright. You see, God could say, Esau would serve Jacob, the older serving the younger, because God knew what kind of man Esau would become and the fact that he'd sell his birthright to his brother. Please understand this. God didn't hate Esau. He did hate the man Esau would become and the decisions Esau would make. In Hebrews 12, we're also told that after he sold his birthright, when Esau wanted to now inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. The idea isn't that Esau was prohibited from repentance by God. The idea is instead that while Esau deeply regretted his decision, Esau never found an opportunity ideal for him to repent. I believe that there are many people who simply overthink all of this because they fail to accept one truth, that God's sovereignty can coexist with man's free will. Now, I will say up front that there are some dynamics to this I don't have answers for, that there are some aspects of God that I don't understand. That should be encouraging for you because if this idiot could understand everything there was to know about God, Logically, that would make that God an idiot. The fact that I can't fully comprehend everything there is about the infinite God of the universe is not something I'm bummed out. It encourages me. That's encouraging. But God's sovereignty can coexist with man's free will, and here's why. The Bible clearly presents examples of both. Personally, I don't find that problematic. People that are, are, are on this sovereignty-only trek, they have to take passages of Scripture and butcher them to fit their argument. On the flip side to it, those who are just all free will and no sovereignty, they have to take passages of Scripture and butcher them to support their arguments. I have no problem saying, I see both. I don't fully get how it all works, but I can trust that God knows what he's doing because he's much bigger than I am. That said, 
Does God know who will go to heaven and who will go to hell before they're born? Absolutely yes. He knows because he's already aware who will ultimately respond to the moving of his spirit and choose to place their faith in Jesus. God also knows who will choose to reject him. He knows who will accept him. He knows who will reject him. Additionally, just because God knows some men will accept his grace while other men will refuse it does not mean that that God declines to demonstrate that grace to all men. I reject that. The reality is that you will be hard-pressed to find me an example, a specific example in Scripture, where God's divine sovereignty eliminated the need for human responsibility. The fact that God knows your destiny doesn't change the fact that you have a choice in said destiny. Zach, man, I just, I, I don't know, man. Have I been predestined for salvation? I don't know. Have you accepted Jesus? Yeah. Okay, you've been predestined for the foundations of the world. You're good. Have you accepted Jesus? I haven't. Well, maybe you're not. Or on the flip side, why don't you just choose Jesus and then we know you were always predestined. It's not complicated. Well, what if I never choose Christ? What then? What does that mean? Well, why God knew before you were born that you would choose hell. That doesn't mean that Jesus' atonement wasn't available to you. It doesn't mean that his grace was never something you could have received, that your life was therefore not redeemable. It doesn't mean that you were damned before you were born, that you were destined for hell all along. I can't go there. It doesn't mean any of that. The reality is that even knowing before you were born that you would choose eternal separation instead of reconciliation, I believe that God still loved you so much that he sent Jesus to create a way for you to be saved. He sent his spirit to draw you to the cross. He placed representatives across your path to practically testify that there was a better way, that God gave you sunrises and sunsets and cool breezes and full moons and planet earth on HD, all to awaken you to his presence, that he's there. And you know what? He did all of that even knowing you would reject him anyway. Well, that seems silly, Zach. It doesn't. Because it just tells me that God loves you that much. You see, no man, no woman, who in their free will decisions chooses hell over Jesus, will ever be able to stand before God and blame him that God predestined their destiny. How can you send me to hell? I never had a chance. No one can ever claim in heaven that they would have if only God had. Even Charles Spurgeon, who I believe takes election way too far, He concedes this, quote, your damnation is your own election, not God's. Totally destroys all of his other arguments. He also famously said that he was a Calvinist Monday through Saturday, but an Arminianist on Sunday. On Sunday, I'm going to preach like you're all predestined. It's true. I don't 
mean to go off on a tangent. I really don't. But the problem I have with the removal of man's free will and the notion that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son only describes a segment of the world God chose beforehand. You know what that does to God? It makes him the ultimate tyrant. If man has no choice, then man's never possessed a choice, making this entire human cluster dump of an existence completely his fault and his doing. Seriously, creating human beings specifically destined to live in the torments of hell for all of eternity with no choice otherwise is not only completely inconsistent with what I know about Jesus, but in actuality, it presents my savior as more of a totalitarian elitist, only interested in the well-being of those he's chosen as opposed to the broken masses he created. In such a dynamic where God rejects someone before they were even born, grace then, it's no longer free for all men to enjoy, to accept, Grace is instead relegated to an entitlement reserved for only those who've met some undefined character criteria established by God. Honestly, I find such a presupposition nothing more than a bastardized version of the amazing grace of God demonstrated to all men and accessible to anyone who choose to place their faith in Jesus. I hope I didn't overstate my position. Moving on. This is what we know. God had chosen Jacob the younger. He'd chosen Jacob to receive the birthright over Esau the older. Though Esau was to be the natural recipient, still was going to go to Jacob. And just so you know, according to Deuteronomy 21 and 1 Chronicles 5, this birthright, when we talk about the birthright, this is more than just who in, 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 the, in the kids are going to get all of Isaac's stuff. Like, yeah, I'm the oldest. I'm going to get all my dad's junk. That's true. But the birthright went much deeper than that. The birthright meant that you are going to take the place in the family as the spiritual leader, the spiritual head of the home. The spiritual heritage of your father would be given to whoever had the birthright. In a sense, when we talk about the birthright, it's important because of the Jacob's, of Isaac's sons, Esau or Jacob, whoever had the birthright, that's in whom God had determined the Messiah would ultimately descend. Let's look at verse 29. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field. He was weary. And Harry said to Jacob, Please feed me that same red stew, for I'm weary. They get some leftovers, throw it in the microwave. Therefore, his name, and this is kind of in retrospect, Esau's name comes to be known as Edom, which means red. The Edomites ultimately descend from Esau, which is why we're given that detail. But Jacob, he said to Esau, so Esau comes in, he's hungry. Yo, Jacob, can you get me some food? Yeah, man, that's fine. Here's the condition. Sell me your birthright as of this day. So Esau said, look, man, I'm about to die. Like, why do I care about my birthright? So Jacob said, swear to me. Doesn't matter, give it to me. So Esau swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils 
He ate, he drank, arose. Esau went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Literally, everything about this story is totally wrong. Like there's not a silver lining. Everything is a, is a disaster. Esau. Esau sold a birthright that, that wasn't his to sell. You notice that? Up front, both boys know who the birthright belongs to. Esau sells his birthright when it wasn't his to give away. God had already chose Jacob. And yet, as David Guzik observes, Jacob's actions, his actions were worse than Esau's. Why? Quote, Jacob was guilty of scheming in the flesh to gain something that God had already given him. You see what's whacked out about all this? Like there's no faith at all. Esau may have despised his birthright, but Jacob was guilty of seeking to earn something that God had already given to him. Oh, the genesis of grace, right? Once again, the amazing nature of God's grace is that God's favor has already been given to you. Do you know that? You already have the favor of God. That means that you don't have to work to earn it. You don't have to scheme to procure it. All you have to do because of Jesus' work on the cross is live as though you have it. And you know why? Because you do. Sadly, Jacob was seeking to attain something that God was giving him. And why did he do this? Jacob failed to trust that God would make good on his promises, that God's word wouldn't return void. Let me ask you, how were you saved from sin? Your works or Jesus' work? If you believe this morning that it's only through Jesus' work on the cross then you'll trust that work to be more than sufficient. And you know how we'll know? You'll reject any human work that claims to play a role. If you really believe that you're saved, justified, made right in the eyes of God, simply because of what Jesus did on the cross and that alone, and that work is sufficient, then what you're not going to do is buy into the lie that you now also have to obey these sacraments or that you also have to be baptized or, you know, you're really not a Christian. It's Jesus dying on the cross and you speaking in tongues. That's it. That's the ticket or confession. And that list can go on and on and on. Do you believe that your salvation is your works or Jesus's work? And if you do, you will trust that that work is more than sufficient. You will not stand before God and say, I did all these things. Lord, Lord, I did all these things in your name. Only thing that matters, Jesus says, is whether or not he knew you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Let me also ask this. How do you now grow in godliness? You're saved. You're justified. You're right before God. But now how do you become more like Jesus? How do you grow? Is it your works or the Holy Spirit's work? How does that happen? How does that transformation happen? 
You see, if you believe life change only occurs as a work of God's spirit, then you'll trust that that work is sufficient and reject any human work that claims to play a role. It's Christian legalism. While Esau despised his birthright, Jacob's sin was graver because he failed to trust in God's ability to work, to fulfill his promises. Jacob was scheming to achieve something he already possessed. How stupid. Understand, when you rely on anything other than Jesus for salvation or God's spirit for sanctification, all it reveals is your lack of faith in God's ability to work. It's equally stupid. Chapter 26, verse 1. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go to Egypt. Live in the land which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give these lands. I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. So, so the birthright is being given to, to Isaac. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heavens. I will give to your descendants all of these lands. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed. And that's the messianic promise. Blessed through salvation. And then, and then the Lord says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Now, now we have to pause there. We're going to get to this story next Sunday. But, but there's something that jumps out, jumps off the page. That's like, are you kidding me? Look back at the last statement that God makes to Isaac. Look at it. God says, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, kept my commandments, kept my statutes, kept my laws. What Abraham is God possibly referring to? Because I'll tell you, it's not the Abraham we've looked at for the last like three months. Seriously. Clearly, it's not the Abraham, you know, who didn't obey God when he was commanded to leave behind his family in Ur, which led to a prolonged detour in Iran. You know, that Abraham couldn't have been the Abraham who quickly left the land God had promised when a famine arose just after he arrived. Could have been him. How about the Abraham who lied about his wife, Sarah, being his sister? Not once. Not even twice, but according to the text, on multiple occasions throughout his lifetime. More interested than his own, his own hide than his wife's well-being. She's my sister. Take her into your harem. It's all good. Could it have been that Abraham? Oh, it must have been the Abraham who ends up giving away half of the land that God had given him to his nephew Lot because he couldn't be man enough to settle a disagreement. Or how about the man who decided to expedite God's plan of providing a son by sleeping with a handmaiden named Hagar, only to then fail to rail in a vindictive wife who is now treating this innocent girl with disdain? You know that Abraham? You see, yes, Abraham. There were several moments when he was obedient to the commands of God. You gotta give credit where credit's due. God said, take Isaac up to Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering, and what happened? Abraham obeyed. And yet, seriously, as it pertains to obedience, the case can be made, and we've made it, that Abraham failed to obey more than he obeyed. So how is it that God, 
in the written word can make such an audacious claim about Abraham, especially following 13 chapters that give us the whole story where we're like, is there a different Abraham? Because I just looked at his life and that doesn't seem to jive. Like how can God make this claim? Here's the answer. Because Abraham had placed his faith in a coming savior, in spite of all of those failures, God had already declared him to be righteous. Meaning, all of his sins, all of his failings, all of his shortcomings, every time he opened mouth, inserted foot, or stepped in it. All of those times, because he was righteous, all of his sins were wiped from the slate. Scrubbed from the logs. That is the power of God's grace. Friend, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, I want you this morning to leave knowing this one reality. No matter what mistakes you've made in the past, no matter how grave those mistakes might have been, no matter the consequences those mistakes might have practically yielded in your life, the life of your family, the life of your friends, etc. Whether those seasons of disobedience occurred before you came to Christ or you stepped in it afterwards. If your sins are sins of the past, <laughs> or how about just the ones you committed this past week? or the ones you'll inevitably commit in the week to come. I want you to know this. God evaluates you and your life based on one simple criteria. Because you've placed your faith in Jesus' atoning work on the cross, you, by that work, have been made righteous in God's eyes forever. In spite of all of those mistakes, In the past, today, how does God see you? Right now, how does he see you? He sees you righteous. That's radical. No religion makes that claim. Regardless of whatever mistakes you'll make this coming week, when you come back to this place next Sunday, how will God see you? If you've placed your faith in Jesus... You totally blow it this week. I mean, you do everything wrong. You come back. How does God still see you? Righteous. Didn't change. Why? Because you were always an idiot. Always an idiot that needed, to, that needed Jesus to take your place. That your works could never be good enough. So God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die in your place. If you've placed your faith in that, no matter what you've done in the past, that slate's been wiped clean. When God sees you, he sees you as if you've been obedient, always. This is the only way God can make a statement about Abraham. Abraham, man, totally obedient. How? He wasn't. God cast his sin as far as the east is to the west. Though his sins were as scarlet, they had been made how? white as snow. Why does God say Abraham was totally obedient to me? How can God say that? Because God only saw his obedience. 
because he placed his faith in Jesus. That, my friend, that is what the gospel of Jesus is all about. That is why his grace changes everything. (laughs) The Bible says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can there not be condemnation when I totally blew it this week? (laughs) Because God doesn't see it. Because he's already forgiven it. He's already cleansed it. So what do I do then, Zach? What do I do? (laughs) You live like you have a birthright. You live like you've been given it. Because you have. Because you have. Grace. It, It changes us. Because I don't have to work to cause God to love me. How could he love me any more than what he's already demonstrated? He sent his only begotten son to die for me. God loves me. And that love doesn't change. It doesn't waver. It's unconditional. I hope you know this morning that you're You are the favorite of your Father. So we thank you for your word, Father.